So what we have here is I stand here this morning and I have hope and I have confidence because I'm not alone. Because God promised he would never leave me or forsake me in anything, even in parenting, even in the responsibility of remembering what God has done and passing it on to our children. God promised he would never leave me. And he's given me godly men and women to partner alongside with me in that and to hold me accountable to it. And it's that partnership, that idea of partnership that I want to focus on this morning. We believe that two things, there are two things that best make a disciple. You ready for them? Paul talked about them a little bit earlier. He said community and commonality. And I want, to talk, I want to highlight commonality this morning. Community is what they get when we're, when we're all mixed in together. They get to see, um, they get to see how the older generation worships. How they respond to the Lord. How they pray. That's good. But we also have something in common. We have a partnership. And it's, it's grounded in the gospel. So what I want to do is I want to I read from Philippians and I want to look at what Paul says regarding this par partnership. Because what we have here in Philippians 1 is a perfect picture of what that partnership looks like. And there's certain characteristics that make that partnership work. And I want to highlight those as well. But before we do, before we get there, let me say this. It's time today, right now, that we commit to making our homes and churches venues of grace. Fathers, it's time that we stop being passive in our homes for whatever good excuse we may have. Working all day, we're tired. It's time we stop using our homes as vacation spas, relax, places of relaxation, and start using them as venues of grace. Venues in which the gospel message is first and foremost and is the foundation in which our children are raised in the, child, uh, in the training in the fear of God. That's what we need. That's what has to happen. So it's my prayer as we move forward that our homes and our churches would become venues of grace. Not that they're not. There's always room for improvement. And we'll see this in Philippians. And I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do something different. I didn't do this in first service, and I wish I had. As I'm going to read the latter portion of Paul's um, Thanksgiving prayer because it tells us Paul's asking the Philippian church to do something more do more of something that they're already good at there's no rebuke here it's an encouragement to press forward to move on to take greater risk and greater sacrifice Let's pick up in verse 9. And it is my prayer 
that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is what Paul is doing here. He's praying for the Philippian church that their love would abound more and more. And this is already a church that from day one has sacrificially given to Paul's ministry. I mean, they've done crazy stuff. One of the guys in there actually went to go deliver uh, monetary resources to Paul, got sick, almost died, had to, had to wait, get better, and then Paul sent him back. So they're already loving well. They're already doing certain things well. And it reminds me a lot of our church, a Valley Bible church. There's a lot of things that we do well. I mean, you can't walk through those doors and not feel loved. If you, if you don't, there's, I mean, if you walk through these doors and you feel like people hate you and are judgmental, there's something wrong with you. Seriously. <laughs> I was here two, I was here one day. One day, and I immediately felt the love and the camaraderie and the commonality of Valley Bible Church. One day. When I got here, I pulled up, and my, my big trailer had all my stuff in it. And there was godly men waiting there saying, Pastor, you ain't got to do this. We got you. It was a big welcome sign, air mattress. In there. I mean, it was just, it was great. It was awesome. So Valley Bible Church, here, there are things we're doing this well. It's like the Philippian church. But Paul's asking them to love more. He's asking them to take it to the next level. Take this partnership to the next level. And maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe what we need to do here this morning is understand what's at stake and recommit and refocus refocus our lives on the things that we have in common, the things that we can share with our, with our families, our Christian families, and the things that we can share as individuals. But in order to do that, we need something. We need love. We need love without boundaries. Paul's prayer was that our love would abound more and more. And if you notice... There, uh, there's no object for love in this sentence right here. Paul's not saying you need to love God more or love people more or love food more or love yourself more. He's not saying that. He's saying love without limits. There's no limitation. The only qualification is that it's done with discernment. And it's, it, the discernment's not talking about what's right from wrong. That's a given. He's talking about Distinguishing, having the discernment, the love and the discernment to say, to, to distinguish between what's good and what's excellent. And we're going to go back, we're going to go back up to the, the, the introduction, verses 1 and 2. And the reason Paul's praying for this, the reason he's asking this is because there's already a hint of disunity among two of the prominent women in the church. They're, they're fighting a little bit. Paul's saying, uh, no, you shouldn't be fighting over that. Seriously? You guys are awesome. You guys are a great church. Why are you doing this? You know what? I'm going to pray that you have more love, that you'll be able to determine, distinguish 
um, things that are hills on which you need to die. So let's go back to uh, Philippians 1. Um, the history of this church, the Philippian church, can be found in Acts chapter 16. Um, Paul, having seen a vision of a man from Macedonia, uh, calling him to come to, the, to, to Europe, essentially, and preach the gospel. Um, Paul and Timothy, they, they were like, let's do it. Let's go. So they went. Uh, Silas was with them, along with Luke. They made this fearsome, foursome team that was pretty crazy. Um, there was some heavy evangelism going on there. And um, when, they got to, when they got to Philippi, there was no synagogue. There was no Jewish synagogue. But there were women meeting together, and they were praying, and they were worshiping the God of Israel. So Paul just like, all right, let's do this. Just jumps in there, gives the gospel, and that's the beginning of the Philippian church. And you read an awesome story of how Paul and Silas, we sang about it actually, how Paul and Silas were locked up. It was pretty cool. They sang their way out. So let's read Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Something interesting here. If you want to know what Paul's about, if you want to know what anybody's about, listen to them talk for five minutes. Because what fills your heart leads your life. And what you say with your mouth comes from the heart. And in these two verses right here, Paul's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, three times, seven times total in 11 verses. Paul is consumed with Jesus Christ. He is all about Jesus Christ. You can't hide that. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we get to the meat of the passage, let's look at what Paul's saying in the, in the first two verses. It's important we don't overlook this because what you'll find in reading, uh, reading Paul's letters to the churches, you'll usually find the issue... Or the topic in which he is writing addressed in the introduction and the thanksgiving prayer portions of the letter. And here is no different. You have your typical, uh, typical greeting, very similar to the way Paul opens up the rest of his letters, uh, except for one thing. Paul does not qualify his apostolic authority. In all his other letters, Paul establishes the idea that he's an apostle. He establishes his authority and his teaching. You need to listen to me because I'm an apostle. But only here and in Romans, he uses the term servant. In Romans, he actually uses the word, the term servant with apostle. This is important. It's important because what Paul is doing here is he's leveling the playing field. He's saying, I am, I am not an apostle, I am rather a slave. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And that word servant is really nice. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's nice, I mean, when you read it, you're like, oh, he's a servant. You know? And he's, we're not talking about a servant like waiting tables. 
It actually means bondservant or slave, which wasn't a popular term back then. You didn't want to call yourself a slave. You don't want to call yourself a slave today. But Paul is identifying himself as one who is owned by a master. He's saying, I am a servant. Paul and Timothy are servants of Jesus Christ. Jesus is my master, and it is him in whom I am obedient. That's what Paul is saying. He is reminding the church that as Christians, we don't belong to ourselves. We were bought with a price. It costs something. Our motives and mission in life should no longer be to please ourselves and satisfy the desires of, of, of the flesh, whatever they may be, but rather to live each moment, each moment of our lives in complete and absolute surrender to the motives and mission of Jesus Christ. And that's important. Because when we're talking about in terms of partnership, remember, that's, that's, what, that's what we're talking about here. Humility is essential. It's an essential characteristic between two parties who come together with one common goal. You have to have humility. And Paul, right off the bat, right off the bat he's saying, look, you guys are doing great, but I'm praying that you love more. Why? Because there's a hint of disunity and arrogance between a few of you guys. And it's causing a division in the church. It is hurting the mission of Christ. So in order for all this to work, this, this, is, how, this, is, this is practical for us. In order for all this to work, and by all this I mean the concentrated effort by our church's leadership to redeem and equip the family and the transition of our student ministry Sunday services along with the adult classes we're going to need a dose of humility and unity in order to pull it off which we have so much at stake too much at stake for us to be I don't want to say selfish, because that's, that doesn't describe, that's not a good term to describe our church. But we do, there is, an, there, there is a certain amount of, it's, it's not humility in, gen, in general, it's more humility. It's the next level type stuff. It's the, it's, it's the type and amount that distinguishes between being good and being great at something. We have too much at stake not to desire greatness from this partnership that we have. It requires humility. Here is a, a very painful illustration uh, of this. And I say painful because I'm a Laker fan, right? I love the Los Angeles Lakers. And so does Paul, and we're the only ones. Right? But in 2012, 2013, they had an opportunity of a lifetime. They had just acquired uh, Steve Nash through trade, pretty much got him for nothing. They got Dwight Howard, right? D12, best center in the game. It was on. I mean, Paul and I, when we heard the news, I mean, we were dancing in our offices. And that says a lot, because we don't dance. <laughs> but we were fired up. 
And we were already counting ring number 17. And something terrible happened. They sucked. <laughs> I mean, seriously. They started off the season like 0-8 or something. They fired their coach within the first five games. It was like horrible. And, and something so promising, something, a championship was at stake, and there was greatness on the line. The legacy of Kobe Bryant, Dwight Howard, all of that would be defined by this season. Could Steve Nash win it all? But guess what? Arrogance got in the way. Dwight Howard didn't want to share the ball with Kobe. That's how it went, really. And guess what happened? There was disunity. And everybody started playing for their own reasons. And they forgot about that one common goal. They forgot about the one thing that brought them together in the first place. That was the goal of winning a championship. I'm going to stop talking about this now. It's starting to hurt. The Warriors still couldn't beat them, though. We need, we need next-level humility. And I'm here to tell you, if you're here and you're on the fence about Christ and humility is really not your thing, you're more of a power and authority guy, well, you're better off becoming a Muslim. Because their prophet rode a horse and conquered cities. But our Messiah rode a donkey and he washed feet. Okay? Humility is essential. We already have that. But we need more of it. You can never have too much of that. Let's move on. Let's move on to the next characteristic of a partnership, and it can be found in verses 3 through 6. I'm going to read that. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the, in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul enjoyed a unique closeness to the Philippians. And we see that in his exceptionally warm and friendly expressions in this letter. But Paul makes this clear as he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you always making my prayer with joy. Paul was a praying man. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was so fired up. Every time he remembered the Philippian church, he started praying. I wonder what would happen if we, as a body of believers, every time we remembered somebody, we just prayed for them. Not that superficial, hey, I'm praying for you, but really praying for them with joy. Why? Because of the things that we have in common, because of our commonality. The word partnership is a Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship. Paul feels a warm Fellowship in the gospel with the Philippians. And the same word and its derivatives appear six times in the book of Philippians. And they say that Philippians is a letter of joy. And it's true, it does appear 16 times. But the motive, the reason for joy is because of the word partnership. It's because of the Philippians' partnership with Paul and Paul's partnership with them in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
So when Paul uses the word fellowship here, it's not the same as we know it. All right? It's not a church social fellowship, a men's breakfast, or um, a, a ladies get together. It's not coffee and donuts as we often think of it, uh, uh, as we often think of the term, but it's a robust fellowship that rides on their mutual commitment to the gospel. That's pretty awesome. Fellowship over coffee after a church service is good, but it's not Christian fellowship. Don't call that fellowship. Call it hanging out or something. It's fellowship among Christians, but not Christian fellowship. Not the Christian fellowship that Paul celebrated. Why? Because none of us are in chains while we're drinking coffee. And that's the fellowship Paul's talking about. Being in chains for the gospel. Now don't misunderstand me. Okay, I love coffee and I love to eat. Alright? Come on now, that's truth. I love to eat. I'll eat anything that's thrown in front of me. Seriously, try me. Invite me over to dinner. I ain't doing nothing after this. I'll go to lunch. I'll eat anything and everything that is placed in front of, in front of me. And it, it'll, it tastes even better when it's in good company. That's not true fellowship. If you're looking for true fellowship, it's a partnership. It's a partnership. And it requires that you give yourself to the gospel. It's the only thing. It's our commonality. You see, there, this gospel fellowship grew from their commitment to support Paul's mission. His mission. They support, the Philippian church supported Paul financially and spiritually. And in return, it resulted in prayers of thanksgiving and an attitude of joy from Paul. And for us, at the center of every successful partnership is a mutual commitment to something bigger. It's something bigger than the partnership itself. It's the commonality factor. And it's the second characteristic that makes, up, that makes a partnership successful. We talked about it a little bit this morning. Community and commonality. Commonality is the aim here. Between Two generations, three generations, four generations, the one constant is the gospel message of Jesus Christ and how it's transformed us, and we have hope and confidence that it will transform those that follow. In regard to this partnership, it's necessary. It's necessary between our families and the church, and we're in desperate need. This is what I'm, this, this is, this is what I'm feeling right here. It's not that we're not good at it. We're, we're good at sending money to missionaries. We're good at funding our outreaches. Um, we're good at all that stuff. Bungee soccer, volleyball madness, summer night camp. We're good at doing that. But what we need, and what happens is when we get so good at doing something, we kind of forget what it's all about. And what happens is we start, to, we, we kind of get a little lackadaisical and we don't want to serve as much. We'd rather just give the money away. We'd rather just write the check. It's easier sometimes than actually getting up and, and using our hands and feet. 
We need to rediscover that. We need to rediscover that partnership. We are in desperate need of rediscovering the gospel message of Jesus Christ as the hub, as the center of our commonality. The gospel has got to be the center of who we are individually and collectively as Christian families and the adopted household of God. We need the gospel. There is nothing else. We can agree on a lot of things. Discipline, purity, education, all those things are good. And we should have those in common. But the reality is, is that none of those things will save our families. None of those things will save our children. The gospel has to be our, motiva our motivation for the things that we do. For the time and money and the resources that we give. And that's the partnership that's highlighted here in Philippians. That's what Paul's talking about. It's called the fellowship of the gospel. We desperately need to reclaim that. Not just, I mean, the, the American church, we're it, it seems like we're losing the battle. And we can get more morals, but we need more gospel. That changes lives. Paul knew that the Philippian church, they knew the gospel changed lives because they'd, they'd experienced it. And because of that experience, because the Philippians and Paul had experienced it, Paul, in verse 6, he says something pretty cool. He says that God has the ability to keep you, to finish the good work that he started in you at the day of Jesus' return. Now, either, either, we really, either we've lost the gospel as center of our lives or we have a lack of confidence. Because to Paul, he was so confident, he was so confident in what the Lord would do and how the Lord would, would sustain and continue to resource the Philippian church that he was willing to go all the way to chains to prison to being locked up in stocks and beaten for preaching the gospel great confidence in God always leads to great risk and great risk is a sacrifice that we make out of love God has the ability to keep you. And that's, that's the beautiful thing. Maybe we're here and we, yeah, we, we, we might need to rediscover the gospel. But you know what? As long as God's in it, I'm down. As long as God, as, as the Lord Jesus Christ is, is our provider and it's him that we're trusting in, this is, this is, this is a small piece of cake. We got this. Also, notice something uh, real quick before we move on. Um, from the first day until now, um, this, this fellowship, this partnership with Paul and the Philippian church happened at the moment of their conversion. When I signed up, when, uh, when I was younger, I was young and dumb, and I decided to uh, join the army, enlist in the army, uh, they gave me a three-month delay. Called, uh, they put me on the debt program, delayed entry program. Um, 
And the reason being is because they wanted me to think about the decision I had just made. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to join the Army? So I had three months to think about it, and after the end of three months, I was like, let's do it. I'm cool with it. Turned out to be a, just a crazy, tumultuous time in our lives. But here's the thing. When it comes to God, when it comes to our enlistment in the fellowship of the gospel, it's immediate, and it's not optional. It's an expectation. The same grace that saved you, you now become partakers of. You become ambassadors of the very same message that saved you. You become vessels of grace. And that's what Paul wants to communicate. That's what he's saying. From the first day until now, God has the ability to keep you. By the way, this is a continued partnership. It's a continued partnership. God expects us, expects us to continue in this fellowship of the gospel. We can't, we, we can't depend on great moments of faith and say, well, there was my, there was my con contribution. Because that's what we tend to do. And I know for me, the hardest part of this message, the hardest part of talking about partner partnership and looking at this was internalizing it and say, what does this look like for me? Because in my history, my past, I have great moments. I have moments of great, crazy, radical faith. It's kind of like this, up and down, up and down. And as, I, as I'm looking at it, I say, what does this mean for me? How am I sure this will happen? How am I, how, what's my confidence? What am I banking on? What do I have to show? So what? I moved, I moved across the country three years ago. Big deal. What am I doing now that matters? What am I doing now that makes a difference in the, with the gospel? What am I doing with it now? What am I doing with my resources now? It takes risk and sacrifice. And it's found, and it's a, it, it, it stems from confidence in God. Great confidence leads to great risk. It's continual. Finally, let's look at the characteristic of this partnership and close with something practical. Um, maybe some changes we can do individually and corporately as Christian families and as a church. But I want to highlight something real quick in verse 7. Uh, in verse 7 it says, uh, It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this is, this is, this is, uh, this is what Paul prayed for. At the beginning he was praying for love to abound more and more. And, he, and he's saying, I'm the example of this. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. That term affection is another word for compassion, the compassion of Christ. Paul is so sold out to the gospel, he's so committed to Jesus Christ, that Jesus loves through him. That's the idea here. I hold, it's right for me to feel this way about you, and I hold you in my heart. He's qualifying his emotional response. He's saying, look, this love that I have for you, it's crazy. The affections of Christ. And for a lot of us in here, it might look weird. Okay? Weird because it's absent. 
It's not part of who we are. The one thing that should identify us, the affections of Christ and how we love one another, is foreign to us and we don't understand it because it's absent. We need to rediscover that. It's part of the partnership. It's required. In order for us to be partakers of grace, we need a radical love. We need a radical, sacrificial love. We can't, there's no other motivation. The Philippian church were giving money they didn't have. In 2 Corinthians 8, and we see it plastered all over our mission possible, right? The 2 Corinthians 8 verse, it says they gave when they didn't have anything to give. They gave sacrificially. That's a reference to the Philippian church. Paul's telling the Corinthian church, you need to be more like the Philippians. They got it right. They're giving sacrificially, but it says they gave, to the, uh, they gave themselves over to the Lord first. They were only able to love as they had been loved, the affection of Christ. And that type of love is dangerous. It's a dangerous love because it, 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 it enables us. It makes us bold. You know when your little kid gets bold, when he's like two or three years old, wants to buck up to you? Gets that spirit of like, I'm invincible. Yeah? And you come up, and he comes up, and he's like, what's up, Dad? And you're like, okay, I got something for you. That's the, that's the same spirit here. That's the same attitude. That's what this love does. The affection of Christ makes us bold. It makes us forget about ourselves, forget about our problems. And it turns our focus from ourselves to the gospel and the people who need it the most. And what we do is we start giving. We start sacrificing. We stop thinking about ourselves. We stop becoming too tired when we come home to play with our children and instead take the time out to hang out with them and tell them about what God is doing. That's, the kind of, that's what this love does. That's what the affection of Christ does. And that's what we need. In order for us to rediscover this partnership and win back our families, we need to rediscover the things that motivate us. This love here, this love has its own economy. And with every selfless act, it prints its own currency. It's the love of Christ. You can't tap it out. It's so full, so abundant, and it's needed. So in light in light of all this, in light of part, becoming partakers in the grace of God, which that, that, that term partakers has a connotation of suffering. Paul's saying, you're sufferers with me in grace. In order for our homes and churches to become venues of grace, we need to become vessels of grace. And the way that happens is through the affection, the love that Christ has for us. We love him because he first loved us. We don't love, we, we can't earn God's love. This love compels us, motivates us, and makes us bold. It's dangerous because it changes you. And here's how, we, here, here's, how, here's how this partnership works. And here's how all this can change us. When we rediscover this, we start getting bold. And we start saying, you know what? I'm going to do something for Christ. 
And here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to partner with us. If you're here, and you're, if, you don't, if you don't have a place to serve, and you're not giving back, there's opportunities. I know in early child care, early child, child care, childhood, that's what it's called. My wife works there. I don't know what it's called. There's opportunities in elementary. We need teachers. We need people to give of their time. There are opportunities. So we're asking you this morning, would you partner with us? Would you walk with us? Walk with us as the Philippian church walked with Paul all the way to his imprisonment in Rome. Would you walk with us and partner with families and help them, come alongside them and help them raise their children in the fear of God? Would you help us walk with us in welcoming a younger generation into our adult services? Would you walk with us in passing on our faith to the next generation before it passes away? Would you walk with us and become vessels of grace so that our homes and our churches become venues of grace? Would you walk with us? It might require you to do something radical. It might be something small at first, throwing a dodgeball at a kid's face. I love doing that. But maybe when that same kid calls you up in the middle of the night and says, I need you. I need Christ. I'm lonely. Would you partner with us? Would you walk with us? That's what we're asking you to do, to recommit to partnering with this church and reaching the next generation. Parents, it might mean you have to get up early. I know that, that's it's tough. It might mean you have to give up your favorite seat and your favorite pew to a teenager, a smelly kid, one that won't sit still. Yeah. But the love of Christ compels us and motivates us to be sacrificial and to not think of ourselves, but to think of the fellowship of the gospel and, the, and that is our commonality. When we do that, our churches and our homes become venues of grace and no longer bunkers. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Um, I'm thankful, Lord, that as we, as we, as we, stand, we sit here this morning, Lord, we're, we're confident. And that confidence is not in ourselves, not in our ability to hold on to you, not in our character, our persona, or anything that we have to offer, Lord. It's in you and what you promised you would do for us. That you would finish the good work that you've started in us. Help us, Lord, to be bold. Give us the love of Christ. Give us the humility we need. Help us to partner with those who need it most. In Jesus' name, amen.